good afternoon and welcome to A Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian and I am your co-host today as we start a new week. Happy Monday. Uh, This is a daily uh, live stream Bible answer program. We do this every weekday from 5 to 6 p.m. Many of the pastors here, sometimes uh, we change it up a little bit from day to day, but uh, we're here to take your questions about the Bible, the Christian worldview, have you ever wondered about a specific passage that you were not quite sure how to interpret? Um, maybe you wanted to see uh, uh, talk about uh, marriage and romance when it comes to how do you apply biblical principles to dating, or maybe you're just kind of curious, how has the Bible preserved been preserved throughout time? So many questions that we get, so many opportunities for you to get clarity on, on not just the what we believe as Christians, but the why we believe. Now, there's many ways that you can chime in and ask questions. Uh, I'd encourage you to join us on Facebook Live. Uh, Our handle is at Tucson. so if you go to facebook.com, look for us there. And we do appreciate if you would like, share, comment on our live streams. It helps us reach more people with the gospel. And we also live stream to YouTube. You can go to YouTube and just search for A Reason for Hope, or you can go straight to our handle, which I'll show you in a moment. But uh, also, if you wouldn't mind subscribing and hitting that notification bell, so if you do watch regularly, please stay in touch. We live stream not only this program, but all our services and special events, special guest speakers, right to our YouTube channel, so you can stay tuned with all the exciting things that we're doing here at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Our YouTube handle is A Reason for Hope 546. Also encourage you to follow our senior pastor, Scott Richards, on Twitter. Uh, you can also tweet questions that we'll try to address here on the program. His Twitter handle is at, Scar, at Scott R4H. Try to say that three times really fast. <laughs> at Scott R4H. That is on Twitter. And we also have uh, our program as well as our services live streamed straight to our website. That is calvarychristianfellowship.com. CalvaryChristianFellowship.com. Go to our website, simply hit the Watch Live tab, and you can watch us not only live stream, but also ask questions, make prayer requests, and dialogue with other people who are watching. So we'd encourage you to do that if you prefer that above uh, other social media platforms. We also have an app that you can download from the iTunes or Google Play Store. And on that app, we have all our events on our calendar. There's a nice little digital Bible. You can take notes. You can make prayer requests, join chat groups, all within the app, as well as watch past services and our live stream program. So we'd encourage you to check that out. We also live stream our services to Roku and the Fire Stick products from Amazon. So if you have a Fire product from Amazon or a Roku you can find us, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and, and, and subscribe to that channel and watch our programs there as well. Now, if you prefer to be a little more discreet and want to ask a question but don't want to <laughs> broadcast it to the rest of the world, you can simply email us directly. That's questionsforhope at gmail.com. So again, if you want to just email us, that's questionsforhope, all spelled out, at gmail.com. <clears throat> In studio with me today... Of course, hey, <laughs> is the big boss man. <laughs> <laughs> the big boss man. Well, you know, I, I saw the big boss man wrestle Hulk Hogan once when oh, I yeah. was in uh, Minneapolis. Oh, gosh. Coldest I've ever been in my entire life. <laughs> but, I, it, but the big boss man, really, that was yeah, the name of the wrestler. I remember wrestler, that guy. Yeah. Wrestled Hulk, Hulk Hogan. 
And uh, boy, you know, when you see uh, world uh, wrestling uh, in person, I'll tell you what, Adrian, it was really frightening. The two of them actually came maybe within foot, six inches at times of actually hitting each other. <laughs> wow. That's pretty dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> so, but the big boss man, he was this huge guy. So uh, that was I'm probably... Sure. I'm not Hulk sure Hogan. I really, really qualify for that uh, that title, but... No, that was about around the time <laughs> he digress. played uh, Thunderlips in the Rocky movie. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, that was right yeah. around that same yeah. time. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you, Pastor Scott, for doing this and being here today. Um, before we take your questions, and I'm I'm monitoring all the social media platforms here, so if you do ask a question, we'll try to address it. Uh, we usually have like a topic of the day we start off with. Uh, but before we do any of that, we'd like to take a time to pray and ask the Lord Absolutely. to be with us so we can uh, make sure our heart's in the right place and we're leaning on who we need to lean on for uh, responding to your questions. No doubt. Let's pray. Father, thank you for meeting us here today. And thank you, Lord, that we have the opportunity not just to talk about you, but to hear from you as your word goes forth. Thank you, Lord, for it being a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Thank you, uh, Lord, that uh, when we begin to discover just how ma amazing it is uh, that you reveal yourself to us and speak deeply to our hearts through your word. Like Job, we find ourselves saying uh, we desire it more than our necessary food. So uh, grant us, uh, Lord, your grace. Grant us uh, the ability just to be able to be like uh, well-tended sheep lying down in green pasture, taking in uh, that sustenance and that still water that we need to uh, get along in these very challenging days. Thank you for meeting us here. Thank you for the awesome things you're going to do. Bless the people that are taking the time to be a part of this broadcast. Wherever they're coming from, I pray you would touch them and bless them individually and specially and specifically today. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm, amen. So do we have a, yeah. start off with a little kind of a prophecy update? Well, sort of a prophecy update. It's kind of a, uh, an, an interesting news. You know, uh, back in the day, uh, there was always uh, a uh, challenge thrown around uh, in the Bible studies that I would go to, especially uh, in the aftermath of the Jesus movement and all. Uh, people would ask, you know, if sharing your faith was a crime, uh, <clears throat> would you be convicted? Well, I saw uh, before we went on the air today on uh, Joel Rosenberg's great All Israel News website uh, that uh, there's a real possibility that that could become a reality hmm. for people in Israel, believe it or not. Uh, there are two uh, Israeli legislators uh, named Moshe Gafni and Yaakov Asher. They are uh, ultra-Orthodox Jewish members of the Knesset. Uh, they're members of the United Torah Judaism Party, a uh, political party that is associated with the Haredi movement in Israel. Very, very hardcore, uh, committed, passionate about uh, Judaism. But uh, the interesting thing is these two individuals have introduced a bill into the Knesset that uh, would uh, cause uh, it to become a crime for anyone uh, to try to persuade an Israeli to change their point of view spiritually. And it is specifically geared, according to Joel's article, uh, to address uh, Christians, uh, Messianic believers, uh, even uh, evangelicals, say, visiting Israel. It would be a crime punishable by a year in prison if you were found guilty of trying to lead someone uh, to Christ. Uh, the text of the new legislation goes like this. At uh, times, at 
attempts to convert Jews do not involve monetary promises or material gains and are therefore not illegal according to the current law. In other words, if you bribe someone uh, to convert, that's against Jewish law right now. It is also uh, against the law in Israel to uh, share uh, a, a different religious persuasion, specifically Christianity, with an individual who's uh, a minor, 18 or under. It's illegal to do that and is a jailable offense. Uh, but this goes further. He says, this bill notes that many of the negative repercussions, including psychological damages, warrant the intervention of the legislature. Therefore, it is proposed that along with the prohibition of giving favors as an incentive to convert religion, also prohibited will be the act of solicitation to convert religion when it is done directly to a person, whether that be face-to-face or any other means of communication. In other words, if you handed a tract to somebody uh, and said, uh, you should read this and say it was the four spiritual laws that would at the end give you the opportunity to be able to uh, make a decision for Christ, that would be against the law and again, uh, punishable by up to a year in jail. Now, this in a sense is not new. Uh, One of the authors of this legislation, Moshe Gaffney, has been proposing this kind of legislation since 1999, pushing this very, very hard. Uh, It really has gone absolutely nowhere. It was always considered sort of uh, the hobby horse of a very fringe sect in Judaism. Uh, And, you know, obviously the reasons that it never got traction was uh, it would not really uh, be a feather in Israel's cap to uh, have as part of the law of the land uh, something that uh, would uh, deny religious freedom or religious expression to people. Israel wants to be portrayed as a very liberal form of uh, democratic republic, if you will, an elected democracy. But uh, what is different here and, and what is dangerous here uh, that Joel points out is, uh, you know, we've shared with you before about how uh, the way uh, Israeli government works. It's the parliamentary system. It's not like ours. Uh, In order to be the prime minister in Israel, you have to form a government. And uh, in order to form a government, there's 120 seats in the Jewish Knesset. And if you can get 61 members of the Knesset to side with you, and then you get to be the prime minister, the, the rough equivalent of our president, if you will. But as soon as you fall under that 61-seat level, you lose power. There has to be a new election. Uh, You're no longer the prime minister. You can't lead the country unless uh, you have that that buffer zone, if you will. Well, the interesting thing uh, about the Netanyahu government is Netanyahu was able to cobble together a coalition. Now, it it gets confusing because uh, the Likud party that uh, Netanyahu heads up is the largest voting block in the Knesset, but it's not enough to to uh, carry that 61 vote margin. So you have to cobble together a coalition of other sort of like-minded, smaller coalition groups, put them all together, offer them benefits and goodies and cabinet positions and so forth, and uh, the whole thing comes together. It's just the classic uh, picture of. So they have uh, multi-parties there. That, yeah, it's not a. Two or two or three party system. Oh, there, there's like eight different parties uh, now. Uh, I I I can't give you the specific number. I can look it up later. But uh, there are multiple uh, parties 
uh, in Israel right now. It's not just the Democrats and the Republicans. And uh, this United Torah Judaism uh, party is a very small party uh, constituting about seven members of the Knesset. But it's an essential party because if United Torah Judaism decides, no, we don't like this Benjamin Netanyahu anymore, and pulls out. Netanyahu now has a coalition of 63 members who mm. support him, who allow his government to function. When you take away those seven members, and what do you got? So you, you fall under that level. You have to have a new election. Netanyahu is removed from power. So what happens in this parliamentary system? You know, We talk about the, uh, the foibles and the faults and flaws of our system. But what happens in this system is that these small parties that sometimes represent some pretty uh, fringe ideas, some pretty radical ideas, uh, have to be catered to in order to have a, a coalition state in place. Uh, there was talk in, in the last election uh, where Netanyahu was uh, seeking to put together a, a coalition of even incorporating some of the Arab parties uh, that uh, were supportive of uh, of uh, Hamas and so forth uh, to be a part of uh, the coalition. That that didn't have to happen, but uh, you you can see how complicated it gets. And so you know you heard the old saw about the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Well, these two individuals are squeaking away there. And now here's the big speculation: if they push this legislation. And uh, Netanyahu, who has been very friendly uh, towards evangelicals, he has always welcomed uh, delegations of evangelicals to meet with him in Israel. He has expressed his gratitude for the support of evangelicals, especially in America. He is not a Christian by any uh, stretch of the, the word, but he's very sympathetic, very open uh, to, uh, to interaction along that line because he kind of knows where his, his uh, bread is buttered. Uh, you know, the support of the United States and the political influence that the support of evangelicals in the United States have as a friend of Israel, very powerful, especially on the Republican side uh, of, the, of the ledger. So, you know, Netanyahu appreciates that, but he also appreciates the fact that you have uh, these two individuals who might see this as their moment of opportunity to push through their ultimate pet project to finally get to the place where they can make it a crime to lead a, an Israeli to faith in Jesus Christ. And I think one of the reasons they're really pushing it is that, uh, as Joel Rosenberg has pointed out in his books and on the All Israel website, uh, there is a tremendous movement, especially among young people, of interest in the claims of, as they would say, Yeshua as the promised Messiah. And, uh, and so the more young people especially are turning away from, say, uh, you know, the Haredi sect and uh, the United Torah Judaism point of view and being more and more open to receiving the gospel. I mean, I'm told by those who are on the ground that as a percentage, more Jewish people are turning to faith in Jesus than any other people group in the world right now. So you can see why these guys would start to get really upset. Oh and really bummed out, and, uh, you know, if you can't, you know, meet on the uh, marketplace of ideas, if you will, and make an argument as to why Jesus is not the Messiah or should not be taken seriously, or why he did not rise from the dead, if you can't make that case, 
well, you can always fall back on the shut up, he explained, mm-hmm. school of reasoning. Yeah. And, uh, I'm and, accustomed to that here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And if you can get the uh, long arm of the law behind you, and uh, again, a lot of this is already in place as far as, you know, you can't uh, persuade someone to change their faith by offering them favors, by paying them money. Man, I'm, I'm all over that. That's, that's, that's not bad. Bribery bad. Yeah, bribery is <laughs> not good. But, you know, the minute that you go down this line, uh, you know, Israel has a lot of uh, PR problems in the world right now. The, uh, the, the hoo-ha over judicial reform <clears throat> that would allow, for instance, uh, if the Supreme Court in Israel struck down a law as unconstitutional, it would allow the Knesset to be able to overrule the Supreme Court's decision with a simple majority. In other words, 61 votes would be enough to set aside a decision on the Supreme Court. Now, from what I'm hearing, the negotiation, it looks like this judicial reform is going to happen. But from what I'm hearing, the real negotiating point now is, okay, a simple majority, just 61 votes to do something as overwhelming as saying the Supreme Court got it wrong, we're going to throw that out. Um, That would be pretty challenging. You know, there's been thoughts of uh, saying, well, you know, maybe 90 votes in the Knesset would be enough to overturn a Supreme Court. I mean, that's two-thirds of, uh, of the legislatures going, legislators going along with all of that. Uh, some are trying to say, well, let's split the difference. Let's meet in the middle. Let's say 70 votes. That's kind of where they're at right now. But this whole deal has resulted in huge protests in Tel Aviv. It's uh, resulted in uh, Israel and the current Israeli government. People uh, being opposed to the legislation? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's uh, created uh, uh, people in the U.N., uh, questioning whether Israel could be considered a democratic society and or not. because a yeah. seven-member part of the coalition can literally hold the Knesset hostage because they step out, they lose yeah. the majority, and they have to have a new election. Yeah, and I guess putting it all together is right now Netanyahu has problems enough trying to get this judicial reform thing through. It looks like it's going to happen, but it's tough, and it's costing Israel quite a bit in the realm of uh, international public relations. Mm-hmm and uh, creating quite an uproar uh, on the ground in Israel. In fact, there have been a number of people who have refused to come up uh, and serve as Jewish reservists because they're protesting the idea of uh, this judicial reform deal as it's going through. So it it really is kind of a a tense thing, and especially when you're surrounded by enemies or looking for any kind of weakness. You know, we've seen the uptick in terrorist attacks. Uh, Some really bold, a group of German tourists, for instance, uh, were assaulted by a mob of Palestinians when they went through the city of Nablus yesterday. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, it's really interesting because with me being an exception to that rule, uh, generally speaking, uh, the Palestinians, uh, the Arabs, do not want to offend tourists because they benefit from their presence uh, as well. Uh, but now we're seeing that change. And, and I think it's because there's that perception of a divided Israel a, a, an Israel in conflict that their enemies want to exploit. They want to take mm. advantage uh, of all of this. This may also be one of the reasons why Saudi Arabia, uh, at the behest of the Chinese, has made nice with the Iranians mm. because they can say, well, we can't really count on Israel to be there for us against our hated enemies, the Iranians. I mean, if you think uh, that the Muslims hate the Jews, you'd be right, but there's only one group that Muslims hate more than Jews. The Sunnis 
hate the Shias mm-hmm. more than they hate Jews, and the Shias hate the Sunnis right back. The Saudis are uh, Sunni, the Iranians are Shias, mm-hmm. and it all has to do with who is supposed to be the yeah. rightful uh, successor to Muhammad. It seems like a lot of inside baseball to us, but it means the world to them. Yeah. <laughs> So they see this weakness going on here. And, uh, and then, you know, the, the interesting thing about this um, non-conversion legislation is you can see some people who've had this as their pet issue for a long, long time, wanting to exploit this time of weakness, wanting to put a guy like Netanyahu into a corner saying, mm. hey, buddy, you got enough problems, throw us a bone and we'll be there for you. But, mm. but pretty big bone. To throw. Yeah, and it's <clears throat> it's going to be tough for him to not concede because, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but <clears throat> their Supreme Court is not like ours. They don't, they're not uh, there to just uphold a constitution. There is no constitution. Right. And they can, at any time, overthrow any piece of legislation. There is no checks or balances for their Supreme Court. They nominate their own members. There's no voting. Yep. There's not, it's not democratic. And they can overturn any piece of legislation just based on if they feel they have good reasons to. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. That yeah. Yeah. I, you, you're, you're absolutely correct. And so, um, you know, I'd be sympathetic to that kind of judicial reform because you want to have checks and balances. You don't want to have uh, a legislature, but uh, the Supreme Court being the 800 pound gorilla that can, uh, or the big boss man, if you will, that can just mm-hmm. hit you with a nightstick and it's, it's all over. Mm-hmm. You have to have that, that balance of power there. And I think that's what's being legislated there. Now, there's, sort of there, there's, some, there's some cynicism uh, about uh, Netanyahu and some of his legal problems and not wanting to be beholden to the courts and so on. But, uh, you know, you get a lot of uh, back and forth about mm. how much that is a factor in all this. But I guess what it has to do with the price of tea in China for us is, is this. It really raised a question in my mind. Um, you know, if, say, sharing your faith uh, became illegal in the United States, how much would that affect our lifestyle as evangelical believers well you know you take a look at the research that's done by the barna group and uh, it states roughly about 15 percent of all those who self-identify as evangelical christians will ever mm-hmm. ever share their faith with a non-believer it means 85 percent lower than that <laughs> <laughs> but uh you know there's there's heartening signs you know i think uh, one of the things is inspiring people are, are films like the Jesus Revolution, mm-hmm. you know, and seeing how exciting it is when people really do reach out with the love and the truth of Jesus. Now, lives uh, that, that are just lost and going nowhere can be absolutely turned around mm-hmm. and, and changed on, on either side. I mean, the religious side mm-hmm. and the radical side. You know, I think people want to get in on that. But uh, there's always a price to be paid. One of the things we've seen in the book of Acts is it's interesting. There's always an amazing move of God, and then there's pushback. Uh, There's persecution, and that persecution seems to be the the tool that God uses as a launch pad to get even more outreach going. But as the more outreach gets going, there's always persecution. There's always pushback. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and the, the, the big question we've got to ask, and this used to be asked quite a bit back in my early days of being a Christian uh, when the Jesus movement was, was alive and kicking. If being a Christian was a crime, 
you know, as it could possibly end up being in Israel if the politics shake out. Uh, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Mm-hmm. you know, would people really be able to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are a believer in Jesus? And if the answer is yes, well, congratulations, you're being exactly who Jesus called you to be. He said, you should receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be not necessarily my evangelists, although that's an important part of the process. He said, you'll be my witnesses in all Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost mm-hmm. parts of the earth. And I love the fact that Jesus chose that word because all we have to do to be an effective witness is to say, this is what I've experienced through my relationship with mm-hmm. Jesus. This is the difference that he made in my life. This is, this is the peace. This is the joy. This is the fulfillment. This is the love. This is the security. But most importantly, this is the truth that Jesus has brought to me. And it's truth that can be tested. And it's truth that you can build your life on. It's truth that you can make yourself uh, secure, even walking down the valley of the shadow of death. Mm. And just be able to say, this is what Jesus, this is who Jesus is to me in my life. To be able to say that to people, uh, that makes you a witness. And uh, that's very dangerous stuff. Mm. And to be able to then turn around and say, wouldn't you want to know that love in your life as well? Wouldn't you want to know forgiveness of sins? Wouldn't you want to know that you're going to heaven? Wouldn't you want to know that the true and living God loves you and desires to have a relationship with you Mm. and desires to do amazing, miraculous things in your life? Boy, um, who'd turn that down? But, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, you start to, to, to see the, 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 the winds shifting. Like uh, Bob Dylan once said, you'd have to be a weatherman to know which way the wind's blowing. The rise of woke culture mm-hmm. in, in our society, the, uh, the rise of safe spaces, uh, the, the, the rise of uh, enforced uh, anti-Christian morality, big story uh, earlier today. Uh, about uh, James Reimer, who is uh, the goalie for the San Jose Sharks hockey team, uh, creating a huge uproar uh, because uh, the Sharks decided that they were going to have, let me see if I can get all the initials down, LGBTQIA uh, plus TBA. I don't know what all that means. People, I don't know what all those initials stand for, but you get the impression. They were going to have uh, their uh their uh pride night and in order to celebrate their pride night they were going to have all of the san jose sharks wearing special jerseys that had uh you know the uh, the rainbow flag on it and the word love on it and so on and love wins was going to be the slogan well uh james reimer said no thanks uh in fact he issued this statement under the umbrella of the nhl's hockey is for everyone initiative the San Jose Sharks have chosen to wear jerseys in support of the LGBTQIA plus community tonight. For all my 13 years of my NHL career, I have been a Christian, not just in title, but in how I choose to live my faith daily. I have a personal faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for my sins and in response asked me to love everyone and follow him. I have no hate in my heart for anyone and I have always strived to treat everyone that I encounter with respect and kindness. In this specific instance, I'm choosing not to endorse something that is counter to my personal convictions, which are based on the Bible, the highest authority in my life. I strongly believe that every person has value and worth, and that the LGBTQIA plus community, like all others, should be welcomed in all aspects of the game of hockey, James Reimer. Uh, well, um, that sounds 
fairly commonsensical, <clears throat> but that's a bold statement in it our is. day. It is, and the day will come where those kinds of stances will also be illegal. Yeah. And we'll probably get the most pushback from that movement than any other. Yeah. So uh, I guess uh, the reason I bring all of this up and, you know, this idea of a non-conversion law in Israel is, uh, you know, it's always good to count the cost before you find yourself knee deep in the battle Mm. and sit down and really think through, okay, uh, is my faith in Jesus or telling other people about faith in Jesus so that they can find not only all of the graces that he brings to our life in the here and now, but salvation, deliverance from a Christless eternity in the hereafter, based upon the historical reality that Jesus rose from the dead in a moment of history. Does that message mean enough to me that I would be willing to accept whatever consequences might come my way if the government said, no, you may not do that? And some would say, well, but aren't we supposed to, you know, obey the government and be good citizens? Well, to a point. In Acts chapter 4, we saw Peter and John brought before the Jewish ruling Sanhedrin after they'd healed a man mm-hmm. who was lame from birth that everybody knew from his usual handout spot at the gate, beautiful. And uh, they couldn't deny the miracle. And so the religious leaders uh, said uh, they warned them in no uncertain terms never to speak or teach in this man's name ever again. And Peter and John said, uh, and I just think it's interesting that uh, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they recognized them as having been with Jesus. Mm. And Peter and John said, well, it's right in the sight of God to obey you rather than God, you be judged. But we cannot but speak the things which we have seen mm. and heard. And so, you know, Christians, we cannot speak or <clears throat> describe the things that we've experienced in our walk with God. Yeah. So, you know, I, I guess what I'd say to those of you who are joining mm. us out there uh, is this, um, you know, I just really believe that we are near to the return of Jesus. And uh, I don't think think things are necessarily going to get better before he comes. Things can get very, very challenging. In fact, most people in this world uh, who belong to Jesus, the vast majority of them, do so at a great personal price. Mm-hmm. I, I think we really need sometimes to sit down and, and count the cost and say, you know, okay, who, I, who am I going to be loyal to? You know, am I going to be loyal to Jesus? I'm going to be loyal to the world. Am I going to be loyal, maybe even more challenging, to my creature comforts? Or am I going to be loyal to Christ? You know, when it all comes down to it. Because sooner or later, we may have to make that decision. It does seem history has shown us that the more comfortable Christians are in being Christians, the more complacent they are. And those who have higher costs to pay are far more vigilant to be committed. Um yeah, it seems like I I I personally welcome persecution. I think it's a good thing. I I think we're all too comfortable. <laughs> yeah, especially since yeah. as much time as I spent with those who aren't as nearly as comfortable being Christians. Uh, obviously, there are other comforts too, but that we celebrate here in the United States, just being a first world country. But uh, we have a lot of great questions. Okay, uh, let's dive uh, in. Scott, can you guys elaborate? on St. Patrick and St. Patrick's Day in the United States. Was Patrick Catholic, and did he really do all the things he said he did, or <laughs> well, I don't, is it just I, a holiday I, to get I, drunk? <laughs> I, you know, it's interesting, the uh, Babylon Bee, uh, the, the Christian satire site, and, you know, the, the secret of great satire is it always makes you have to think twice when you, you see it because <laughs> it's, like, so close mm. to reality. Uh, but uh, Patrick... 
uh, he's called St. Patrick, but he was never canonized by the Roman Catholic Church, by the way. Oh. Uh, which is kind of an interesting detail. Uh, he was born to a wealthy family, uh, roughly around uh, the late 300s in Scotland. Uh, his real name, believe it or not, was Maywin Sakat. That, that, that was his given name. Uh, but uh, he was uh, captured in a raid and brought into slavery in Ireland. And uh, he uh, uh, really had a heart for uh, the Irish people. Uh, it, again, this comes from uh, gotquestions.org, and if you really want a great website, great reference uh, to be able to get uh, your Bible questions answered in a really uh, great format, I highly recommend it. Uh, gotquestions.org is the website. But uh, on Got Questions, they tell the story of St. Patrick, and uh, it says that uh, he learned the rituals and customs and language of the Druids. <laughs> we all hear about the, the Druids out there. Those were his target group, believe it or not. Uh, he said that he had a dream in which God spoke to him saying, your ship is ready. Well, Patrick was then able to escape Ireland by ship. But afterwards, he received another dream in which he received a letter that was labeled the voice of the Irish. And when he opened it, he heard the voices of all those he had met in Ireland begging him to return. So he went to Ireland and he went with for the purpose of telling people about Christ. Uh, he persisted, even though it was a very dangerous and difficult field, and was able to lead a number of the Irish people to Christ and build a strong foundation for a church there. Uh, generally speaking, they were receptive uh, to the fact uh, that he uh, was able to take some of the things that they were used to in their Celtic religion and Christianize them, uh, to show them that there were, there were parallels in what they already believed to what the message of the gospel was. He created kind of that, that uh, the Apostle Paul in Acts 17, you know, seeing the altar to the unknown God, yeah, the we, one you worship in ignorance, him I, I declare to you. We call it contextualizing the gospel. Yeah, and, and you're, mm. you're a, a very well-versed expert on all of this. But uh, anyway, one of the most uh, interesting ways that Patrick uh, used to be able to communicate God's truth to the Druids was uh, the shamrock, you know, the four, the uh, three-leaf clover, usually a four-leaf clover, I guess, is the, the rare one. But he would show them this, and he would say that just this is one leaf, but it has three leaves. That's what the Trinity is all about. Now, that, that's not a great illustration of the Trinity, but people could hang with it. Now, it's interesting uh, that, uh, you know, there's all these legends that he drew, drove all the snakes out of Ireland. That's why you don't see snakes there obviously that's that's legendary stuff uh it's interesting how it's sort of uh, morphed uh from being a celebration of a guy that uh, escaped slavery but was a servant of jesus a bond servant of jesus who went back and did his best to reach these people that uh, he fell in love with even under adverse circumstances mm -hmm. it sort of morphed into a celebration of everything Irish, you know, the wearing of the green and, uh, you know, kissing the Blarney stone and, and, uh, getting schnockered, uh, you know, is kind of pretty much what St. Patrick's Didn't day is all about. Well, there's some legends about that, but, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of different legends and backs and forth about uh, this guy, but uh, the bottom line is about 1600 years ago, a young man, uh, who grew up in wealth and privilege, 
found his life turned upside down when Irish raiders captured him and threw him into slavery. Slavery was not uh, a good thing to be in at that particular time in that circumstance. But instead of getting bitter, uh, he fell in love with Jesus. He wanted to go back and help these people, and uh, he did so. And uh, the impact of his ministry is still being felt today. Tens of thousands of people wow. came to Christ as a result of his witness. Yeah, my my mom was sending me all the Catholic uh, links <laughs> during the weekend. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's just interesting, mom's, uh, though. He's never been canonized. Yeah, no, that yeah. I did not know. Yeah. I'll have to ask her about yeah. that because my mom's pretty Roman Catholic. Yeah. <laughs> Another question uh, was, and we have quite a few questions today, was Jesus murdered or killed? And is there a... What's the is there a significant difference between the two ideas? Yeah, well, uh, the thing that uh, that we have to understand is uh, it's kind of both in a way, uh, because there's no doubt about the fact uh, that uh, Jesus uh, was certainly betrayed by Judas Iscariot, certainly his enemies uh, right from the get go. Uh, as soon as they saw him healing a man on the Sabbath day and challenging them to say, which is right to do on the Sabbath, to save lives or to destroy them. And, uh, you know, they were so uh, committed to their steel reinforced spiritual sensibilities about keeping the Sabbath and thinking they were righteous by doing so that, uh, you know, Jesus, when he looked upon them, was like moved with anger in his heart and said to this man in the synagogue with a withered hand, you know, reach out your hand. I think uh, it was uh, a Christian comedian who said uh, that the bottom line in this is, this is bad, this is good. <laughs> yeah. And and yet, uh, we are told that from that time onward, they had made up their mind uh, that they were going to kill him. And uh, either they were they had to go or change their way of thinking, or Jesus had to go, and they, they decided what was going to be what. So, you know, when we see uh, the fact that even though Pontius Pilate uh, did his best to try to weasel out of all of this. His wife even came to him and said, I have nothing to do with this righteous man, for I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. His own interview with Jesus, you could tell Pilate was freaking out a little bit in the presence uh, of Jesus uh, and wanted to do uh, whatever he could to let him go, even trying to set things up by getting the worst prisoner he could possibly get, uh, this guy Barabbas, and say, okay, which one of them do you want me to, to uh, let go? You know, this guy you were welcoming with hosannas a week ago or this horrible criminal. <laughs> and uh, they, the crowd was influenced to say, give us Barabbas. And he goes, why? What has this man done? And, uh, you know, they said, if you let him go, you're no friend of Caesar's and, and all this. And he, he took out the basin, uh, washed his hands in it, the little washing of the hands of this thing and said, I am innocent of the blood of this man and gave him to be crucified. Well, that was basically murder by government. Mm -hmm. uh, they used the governmental system to murder Jesus. But as we said, it's a both and, because in John chapter 10 and verse 18, Jesus makes a really interesting statement. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. This command I received mm -hmm. from my father. Wow. Uh, in other words, Jesus from the get-go knew what his ministry was. 
It wasn't like sometimes you see in the dramatic presentations a bad break or you know a misguided Judas wanting to do the good thing and sort of trying to force Jesus' hand into being the conquering Messiah or or all of these things. No, you know Judas basically sold him out for the mean green and and uh, you know these individuals didn't really care if he'd even raised the dead. I mean, they couldn't even deny that Lazarus had been raised from the dead right before his crucifixion, but they said, uh, if he keeps doing this, the Romans will come and take away our place in our position. You know, they loved their power so much mm. that uh, they railroaded Jesus into death, but God used that. Jesus willingly laid his life down to fulfill those prophecies, and it, and it always raises that, that mind-boggling conundrum, okay? Um, well... Uh, since God predicted this, didn't it have to happen? You know, how can you blame these people who orchestrated the death of Jesus if it was already prophesied? People always bring that up about Judas Iscariot for some reason. If Judas uh, was really the son of perdition and all of that, did he really have a choice? Well, it seemed like he did. Even when Jesus was betrayed by Judas, he even at that late date said, friend, why have you come? Uh, gave him the opportunity to be able to repent. And uh, in a sense, Judas sort of semi-halfway repented. After he saw that Jesus was going to be crucified, he took the 30 pieces of silver, came back and was broken and said, I've betrayed innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. And he threw the money down in the temple treasury, but he went out and hung himself. You know, Simon Peter on the other side of the coin denied Jesus just as much, but he hung around long enough to be restored. You know, could Judas have been restored? Possibly. Was Judas restored? Not hardly. You know, he he died in that state. So, um, and Acts uh, kind of illustrates that not a conundrum, just that thing that makes you think. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I I I know that some who really believe, or I mean, we all agree that God is sovereign yep. and that He knows the future and nothing escapes His will and plan. Um, but the way it's worded here in Acts twenty three or Starting in verse 22, Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to you by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. The idea of... Well, it's the old both and, isn't (laughs) it? Yeah, yep. You know, were these people responsible? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Was God in control of all the events? Yeah. How do both of those things come together? Once again, I defer to uh, one of the the, the real uh, important things I learned in seminary. I I asked my uh, third-year theology prof, been teaching theology for 50 years, Mm. um, you know, how do you reconcile that? Mm. God's sovereignty and, and human responsibility and he looked at me, he kind of smiled, and he said, well, Scott, if the tension ever goes out of that issue for you, it probably means the spring's broken. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, you just, you, yeah. you know, we accept both. Yeah. And when we see the Lord face-to-face, we'll know how it all works. I like the way someone worded it. There are biblical truths that we may not always comprehend, but we certainly can apprehend them. Yeah, yeah. They're not contradictory, but we're just not quite exactly sure how the puzzle pieces of the puzzle fit together all the time. We just know that there they are. Yeah. Well, I don't even know how gravity works. I let alone anybody does. Let alone <laughs> um how things work out in the sovereignty and yet the relatability of who mm-hmm. God is. 
God is sovereign. He is, you know, omnipresent, omnipotent. He's omniscient. All those omnis you want to throw. But he is also perfect love. Mm. And without free choice and free will, with real consequences, uh, real love is impossible. Like God said, I, Moses, you can't even look at me, and yet Jesus says, you are my friends. I yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. so profound. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you for that uh, question there. And uh, next question, let's see. Um, this, I think you would appreciate this, uh, Pastor Scott, because <clears throat> every week you prepare messages. You're always meditating. You're always in Scripture because you're planning for your next time you're going to share. Well, and also, I just kind of enjoy the Bible. <laughs> it, is, yeah, it, is, it is fun. Yeah. And, and yeah. I, I've often said that uh, whenever I whenever I teach or share that I feel like I'm like this passage or this message is being preached to me first. And that's what Mac D wanted to know. He says, "Is it could it be possible to minister to ourselves as we speak to others about the Lord?" Oh, absolutely, Mac. Um, boy, this happens on a semi-regular basis to me. Uh, uh, just uh, uh, maybe an illustration that can bring clarity to this issue for you. Uh, you know, I I I told you many times in this program i'm a recovering adult child of an attorney i say that laughingly because you know i was raised uh by a a dad who had a family that was very vocal very verbose uh you know we would interact verbally uh quite a bit mm. and uh because of that uh very early on i had never really had Fear of public speaking. If I could speak to my dad and present a legal brief to him to get the car keys, I can talk to these people out here. You know, so, uh, you know, when I went into ministry, I was a very classically trained speaker. I did very well in the California State Speech Tournament and all this other stuff mm. when I was in high school. And it was always just a, a very natural thing for me to be able to, to speak. And Part of my classical speaking training was to, you know, write out my messages before I would share them and manuscript them. And, uh, you know, I would, was kind of the assumption that God could speak to you. He could speak to you in your study. And, you know, you don't want to be flying off the, the handle going half cocked or things like this. And so I would really kind of stick to the script uh, as much as I could. And, you know, it was really interesting when I went on staff at Calvary Costa Mesa, one of the privileges I had was uh, filling in for Pastor Chuck when he would go out of town. And uh, when I started to do that, uh, I, I remember uh, someone coming up to me and saying, does it ever make you nervous when you fill in for Chuck? And uh, I, I said, well, um, you know, I, he goes, well, you know, after all, you know, you've got, you know, all these people here at Costa Mesa, you know, this big auditorium, people uh, listening to you. And you know, there's probably, you know, well over 100,000 more listening to you on radio all over the world while you're speaking. Doesn't make you nervous? I said, well, not until you told me all of that. <laughs> but uh, I would always really prepare, you know, and even give my messages, uh, you know, by myself before I would share them because I felt, you know, this, you know, it's really a privilege to be up here. I don't want to waste anybody's time. I want to make sure that, you know, I'm, I'm cutting it straight, telling people the word and presenting it. As best as I possibly could. Well, one night when I was going to fill in for Chuck, I was all set to teach a passage out of the book of Mark. And uh, the college and career group I was running, uh, the leadership we'd gotten together, we'd just been having this wonderful prayer time together. 
And boy, the Lord spoke to my heart plain as day. You know, I don't want you to share that. Um, knew it was kind of God because I was sort of arguing with him. I was like, but Lord, you know, I kind of prepared all of this and I'm ready to go and it's, you know, I'm filling in for Chuck and, and all this. And, uh, you know, it, it was like the Lord laid on my heart that he wanted me to speak about the passage on the road to Emmaus, the encounter the disciples had with Jesus after he resurrected, with the idea of how can you tell a real message from God versus a clever counterfeit, a real encounter with Jesus versus something that is just your own imagination or things like mm-hmm. this. And, you know, it was like the more we were praying and I'm going through this battle in my mind, the more like the Lord was just showing me things in that passage in Luke about the road to Emmaus and all of this. And, and it was just like the passage was just, you know, exploding to me. But I still had my old ways of doing things and, you know, kind of the intimidation of these people are sermon connoisseurs I'm going to be speaking to here, so I don't want to mess up. So I went out and um, when you, we speak at Costa Mesa, they used to have this little kind of half a little pew up there that the pastor is expected to sit on during worship. And then you'd walk up to the, the podium and you'd speak. So I'm sitting there, and I'm just going back and forth. And finally, I was just in such a, a conundrum. Uh, I, I even walked backstage, and I just said, Lord, I just don't even know what to do. Please just help me. Just help me with all of this. So I, I came back, and I had my notes on Mark in one hand, and my Bible was open to Luke in the other hand. And I sat down there, and I took a deep breath, and I said, let's turn in our Bibles the book of Luke. Mm. And... <clears throat> You know, it wasn't as if I hadn't studied that passage before. It wasn't, you know, kind of winging it or whatever. But the Lord was just showing me things. And the, the whole message just, it seemed to flow. Mac, to, to your, your mm-hmm. phenomena there that you talk about, I found myself at points even listening to me going, wow, where'd that come from? Man, that, that's really amazing. And, and it was so funny because afterwards this fellow came up to me and, you know, people like to say nice things to you after a message, and he's, oh, you know, I really love it when you fill in for, for Pastor Chuck because I can tell you put so much time into it, and and you you know you structured this thing so well, and all this stuff. I'm just laughing, as if you only knew. Uh, so, uh, I guess to say this, Mac, you know, when we talk about effective preaching, First uh, Corinthians fourteen and verse three is one passage I always try to keep in mind because it talks about the gift of prophecy. And the gift of prophecy, it's not when someone kind of goes glassy-eyed and stares at you and gives the vibrato voice about the Lord who's telling me to... No, in 1 Corinthians 14, 3, Paul says, everyone who prophesies speaks to men for edification, exhortation, and comfort. In other words, if you want to know what a truly spirit-filled, spirit-anointed message is, it's a word of prophecy. It is God speaking to his people through his word. And it's always going to have those elements to it edification. It's going to be true to the truth of God's word. People are going to come away with more information about the word of God, knowledge about what it says, the facts of God's word than when they started. Exhortation. Going to answer the toughest question any preacher ever gets asked. So what? What difference does this make? How does this apply to my life? Well, the Holy Spirit will apply it to your life and show you different things that he wants to change and where he wants you to grow. And finally, comfort. It's always going to bring you back to the fact that uh, if there's going to be any change in our lives, it's going to be through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and, uh, and that grace that he gives to us. So, you know, when we speak, Mac, 
and the Lord speaks through us. We can know he's speaking through us because all those things are really true. Now, sometimes we've heard messages are a little lopsided. Maybe they're all information. Maybe it's all edification. Sometimes it's all just, we got to be doing this and this and this, and it's all exhortation. And sometimes it's not any edification or exhortation. It's just kind of cotton candy sort of comfort. But you need to have all those elements coming together. And when we come together, a supernatural thing happens, and that is the gift of prophecy. And it only stands to reason that if the gift of prophecy is happening, we'll hear that happening, we'll kind of go, wow, man, that's pretty amazing stuff. We'll, we'll end up speaking to ourselves. So, Thank you for the question, Mac. Yeah, great question. It's, yeah, it's really good. And, and it's not just the content that you learn as you're teaching, but also when you realize that how powerless we are to uh, do anything, that it's really through the power of the Holy Spirit, that, that also ministers to us when we see God work in that way. It's sort of just like it humbles you because you realize, I didn't have much to contribute to this. This is God's work. Yeah, and and but that comforts you because you you it, it humbles you, but it also gives you a grace in that you sense that, wow, God's using me, and that just really means the world to me. Yeah, to, to be able to just be a part of God's plan. Yeah, and you know the 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 longest you know it's been said the longest distance in the universe is the distance between the head and the heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I really think the longest distance in ministry is deciding not to do something for God. Mm but to allow God to do something through you. Mm. That's the secret of life. And I think that's why so many people burn out because they try to do things for God. And I think if you talk about a a spiritual deception, I think Satan wants to get us on that kind of a trip. We're trying to do things for God because he knows we're going to run out of gas. Mm. He knows we're going to get discouraged. He knows that we can't live up to the standard we know is there in Scripture. But when we realize the power of the Holy Spirit, not only when we speak, not only when we serve in the church, but just even real character change within our life, making us like Jesus. Mm. Not something we do for him. It's something he has to do in and through us. And our job is to believe in his power, to daily ask him to do that, to have that willingness and just say, Lord, you got to do it. Because, uh, boy, it's hard to give out of an empty bucket, isn't it? Mm. Quorum yeah. Deo. Yeah. 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 Uh, thank you for that question. And uh, Regina wants to know, um, I'm sorry, not. I'm sorry, I missed that. Yolanda wants to know: canine teeth in humans and sharp teeth in animals. Were they? <coughs> excuse me. Were they created in advance of the fall of man? Did Jesus determine the fall and create defense mechanisms in advance, or were these features and plants and animals adapted them afterwards? So the idea that animals uh, have carnivorous activities is this something that evolved, or not evolved, but uh, God adapted them to that after the fall, or was this sort of like designed in them to prepare for the fall, even though they hadn't fallen yet? Well, Genesis tells us that uh, God created in all things according to their kinds. Uh, the the great people at uh, Answers in Genesis will use a term about these kinds. They called them uh, baramids from bara to create. Uh, that God didn't create every species or every every I should say iteration of dog you've ever seen but all the genetic information that would eventually get filtered down and make all the different dogs that you've seen was created one of those baramids if you will had all the genetic information necessary and we talk about the different uh, racial distinctions we see among people well all that genetic information was there in adam and eve when they were created now different situations different environments would tend to highlight certain traits 
and would tend to eliminate certain traits that were already there. It doesn't create new information. Evolution says that, uh, you know, imagine uh, your, your DNA like a uh, deck of cards. Uh, evolution would say that if we have uh, different traits, it was because information was added. In other words, a, a 53rd card was added to our deck in uh, all of this. But we really find uh, through the study of genetics that uh, any kind of additional uh, genetic information nine times out of 10 ends up being detrimental uh, or, or just ends up getting weeded out. Uh, what happens is, is that our genetic deck gets shuffled, if you will, and certain, certain cards, if you will, become more enhanced. Now, when God created these pyramids, you know, these, these, like say Adam and Eve, having all the genetic information from all the variations of human beings, you see all over the world, still human beings, and the genetic differences between even uh, the, uh, the kinds of human beings you see that are very, very different looking, very, very minuscule when it comes down to it. So uh, did God anticipate that? Well, um, certainly he created that capacity for that. But the other side of the coin is you kind of need sharp canines to crack a walnut, don't you? You know, if you're going to, you know, use that. So, you know, the fall created carnivorism. It brought death into the world prior to that. There was no death, uh, but uh, afterwards uh, we see the results of the fall there. Well, thank you for the question, and uh, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please join us again tomorrow, same place, same time. God bless you. God bless you guys. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.